back to Sandcast Beach Volleyball with Triborn and Travis Mawerger, presented by Marriott Vacation Club Rentals and brought to you by VolleyballMag.com. This is part two of our episode with Billy Allen and John Mayer, which was split in between by Billy's trip to The Hague with Ryan Darty in their first tournament together. They had a, a solid finish. They beat Brazil. Uh, they finished ninth at The Hague, so not a bad start for them. And a huge congrats is due to April Ross and Alex Kleinman, who won the whole thing coming out of the country quota and then into the qualifier and then not dropping a single set in the main draw, winning six straight matches in straight sets to take the gold. So congrats to them. Congrats to Billy on a solid finish. And as always, this is presented by VolleyballMag.com, your daily digital news source for all things volleyball, from NCAA women and men to beach volleyball on all levels to international and more. VolleyballMag.com, the only media outlet that covers our sport on all fronts every day. And, of course, this podcast would not be possible without the support from Marriott Vacation Club Rentals, which offers the best vacation accommodations and the world's best vacation destinations. Wherever you travel, Florida to Hawaii, Europe to California, and, heck, there is a Marriott out in The Hague that Trevor Crabb and Sean Rosenthal stayed at. Choose to rest in our luxurious guest rooms, suites, or villas for your next getaway. Villas offer all the comforts of home, including a full kitchen, living and dining area, and separate bedrooms. Stay with the Marriott name you know and trust. Book big spaces in great places today. Visit www.mvcrentals.com and enjoy part two with Billy Allen and John Mayer. Um, now, what advice would you give your guys, I don't know, maybe f- 10 years younger? If, the, if, like, taking back from what you learn now, what would you tell your, say, you know, 25-year-old self? Me first, please. <laughs> well, like, let's say pre-coaching, too. So I'm, yeah. I'm assuming you guys have learned a lot just yeah. by being coaches. For sure. Um, I think the first, the biggest thing, we started out talking about mindset. I would tr- try to have a way more often have a growth mindset. I think I was very fixed about things. Like, I, I would get feedback, and I would take it more personally. I would, um, I'd be really stubborn, like, no, this is the way I do things. And, uh, yeah, I think I would, I would kind of be, not, not hurt, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't take feed, I, even if it was like feedback directed the wrong way. I, you know, I could have like taken something from it. Like now, I feel like someone tells me something, even if it's like brutal or mean or whatever. Like, all right, like I'll find something there that I can get better at. And for sure, when I was twenty-five, like I think I, I never thought that way. And I, yeah, I took it as a critical thing. I remember one time we got out with Sean Fallowfield. I don't know if you remember that. Like, I, don't know, I just remember feeling like I was so like he was having us do some drill, and I was just like so stubborn about it. Like, mm-hmm. no, this is like the wrong way. This is the and I didn't. You were pouting. Yeah, was, yeah. So I, think <laughs> I, I wish I would have been. Um, yeah, I think just way more open to. I mean, it's cliche, but getting out of my outside my comfort zone and and taking in feedback. But what do you think about? Because you there's certain things you know about how a good practice should be. So yeah, you think you would have just gone with anybody? Um, no, I mean I think I. Uh, I think if. Like, then it was just all opinion. Like, I, I think this, I thought this. I, so it was all just, like, my guesses versus whatever someone else giving me their opinion. I wish I would have taken it in. I think now I have some, like, more evidence behind the things that, that I believe. So if I have some principles that are, like, ev- evidence-based, I would fight for those. But I think even if someone still, like, tried to, like, poke a hole in those, I would, I would try to take it. Okay, like, I hear what you're saying. Like, I want to see, you know, maybe there's a hole in my way of thinking. So i try to take it in. I, I would for sure fight for... Like, if I felt like I had evidence behind my beliefs. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When did you begin to see that shift sort of from the fix to the growth mindset and maybe taking feedback less as, 
you know, personal offense than he did, oh, well, they're trying to help me. Well, one thing I've learned is that we all have fixed mindsets and there's a lot of blind spots. Like we don't even realize we have fixed a fixed mindset about things. So it's, it's really hard. And I think the shift is like never ending. <laughs> so right. it's probably hopefully going on right now. Um, I think I've had some mentors, some people that I looked up to like, like Tom, Tom Black, uh, who coached for the national team and coached at LMU. He, I would just kind of watch the way he took in feedback when people were critical or when people questioned his ways and he was thoughtful about it and you know, he would consider it and try to use it. And so I think having mentors and, and role models, I think that that's a big, big deal. You know, that, that goes a long way. And Billy, what advice would you give your 25 year old self? Hmm. Um, I would have picked up John a long time ago <laughs> playing together. Um, I think I would go after partners a little bit more. I think I was a little, just whoever asked me and, um, rather than like, those players that are hungry going after like bigger name players, whether it's to train with or to play with, I think that would have been a little bit more aggressive on the phone. Um, Cause I think there's a lot of really good defenders and I think a partner kind of separates whether you can win a tournament or not. Um, I think confidence wise, I would have just told myself, Hey, do you, you're going to be doing this for a while. So I like, kind of <laughs> get, get used to that and go after it. I've always maybe looked at that as like a handicap in the short term that like maybe didn't go in thinking I should be, have maybe it didn't have high enough expectations um, but I think long term maybe it's helped me because I've always had to work and get better and <laughs> uh, yeah not think I should be doing something I wasn't but um, maybe maybe tell myself that the confidence didn't really matter just kind of go out there and play and I deserve to be in this in this group I think um, when I think back of Billy at 25 and I, I think I've always thought he was a better player than me like he's a better volleyball player but for especially like that time from like maybe 25 to 30, I don't know, 32, around there. I think I had some maybe better partners and I like took more risks. Like I think I, like early on, like he wouldn't travel to a lot of the events. Like he didn't want to pay to go to a spot and like mm. I'd do it and I'd, you know, fight to get a, a partner that, so I think I did that a lot more often. I think that's a big part of like success on the beach is you've got to um, build relationships and take some risks and, and, and do that. And I think Billy was slower to do that. Not, I mean, it was, rational and conservative but like, like we talked about I talked about his hand setting like he was a really good hand setter in practice and then in tournaments he wouldn't do it so like in general like he he didn't take those risks and that, that's shifted now I mean he's um, you know I think changed the way he's approached those things but I really have always felt like like his like I was like yeah Billy's so good and they're like I don't know like Billy's alright like, <laughs> yeah, like I was like Jake like Jake Phil like Billy is really really good like, yeah he's pretty good yeah. But I don't think, I think a lot of it was because he was conservative with things and never like took those, like he'd stay with the same partner when the partner was like way below his level. Um, so, yeah. It's funny that you said, because I feel like, I, yeah, during those years I was always like, like Mayor's one step above me, like at everything. With my, my partner, my partner yeah. was one step above <laughs> your partner. I feel like I'd always serve Billy's partner and he would serve me and dig me up. Somehow we'd win because I had a better partner. <laughs> That's how I basically determine if a season was successful or not if i had a winning record against yeah. mayor the season i swear you guys so are our long lost brothers yeah. <laughs> and try i know that i mean you haven't been on the avp for a ton of time but if you could go back and do anything different from when you first started would you do anything different i mean you've had a, a pretty smooth path so far yeah i think i had it pretty easy um it's funny, like, hearing what, how you guys talk about it. 
uh, I think I did take a few chances in the beginning that helped me a lot. Um, for one, I went, I, tr- I hung out with Will Montgomery in the beginning, and that got me like three years of experience right there because he, ha- he was dragging me around the world. Um, I went to, uh, after I played in Puerto Rico indoors, I went to uh, New Zealand and played on their um, domestic tour, which is like three weeks or three or four weeks traveling around New Zealand. And then we went to like do an exhibition in Guam and Saipan. And, uh, and then AVP wasn't even really a tour at that point. It was like yeah. that two, they, they had like Cincinnati and Santa Barbara or something mm-hmm. that basically only you guys could play in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went out there and I met Rafi Paulus like, a few days before a week before and I was just like you want to go like I don't know you really much but (laughs) let's go I just want to play so that's kind of like the small like taking chances kind of thing and we lost we we had a somehow forfeit in the first round and then we lost to some team that's we had no business losing to um but just the fact that I went I think gave me some kind of experience I got to watch all you guys you guys older guys play out there um so that helped just taking those chances and going for it. And then also the fact that I called Sean Scott, who gave me John Hyden's number, um, and I just called him. I was just like, you want, you want me to like serve you balls or something? That's basically <laughs> what, I w- what I was thinking when I went into practice. And then uh, apparently Sean or someone was telling John, like, no, nah, he's actually pretty good. Like, watch him. And I didn't know. And then, like, a month in, I was like, oh, this is sick. This guy, like, wants me to keep practicing with him. I'm getting so much better. And he's like, you, all right, you want to give this a shot? I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> like, that's an option? Like, sure, I'm down to never play indoor ever again. So that happened. Uh, but to get back to your question, um, no, I, I, I like the way I went about it because I was just very open to, like, I have John Hyden here. I'm going to be a professional, the best professional athlete that I can be and listen and absorb as much as I can. But towards the end of uh, our quad together, the last year or two, there was times when I was like, I need to make sure I'm doing me. You know, I can't do everything like John Hyden. There's a reason he does things his way. Um, so I guess I would maybe hint that to myself. I think early on it was so valuable to just commit to learning everything I could. But later on, I think I was, I could benefit from kind of being like, no, I'm going to do things my way now because I'm Triborn, not John Hyden. But yeah, I don't know. It, probably, it worked out. It's probably my defender bias, but, and try like everything he's earned and the athlete and player he is, is incredible. Mm-hmm. But when you, we look at our stories, it's like, God, the defender's just like, we scrap and we play as qualifiers and <laughs> we're just begging for a blocker. And like, we're just like 10 years later, I'm like, Jeff Nygaard, will you play, you know, plays with me. Like tries like yeah I played a couple tournaments and then John Hyden like that's the best true. player ever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm not like taking anything away from you but it's interesting like seeing the like how that just that dynamic works and I remember like I think it was the AVP uh, Salt Lake City it's like Hyden's I mean I had, and I had practiced against you some when you were with Will I was like yeah you know he's he's good but he's young doesn't have much experience like Hyden's playing with Try. I remember being pissed that you guys got a wild card, so we got knocked <laughs> in the qualifier. Oh. <laughs> you, you did we? Up. I didn't even know. I didn't sign up with Sean Scott. Oh, yeah. We pulled out. That's and right. Like four teams did that that year. We were like the four seeders. Yeah. My first AVP, my first legit AVP, I was like, I think my first AVP main draw, I was the three seed or something. Yeah, and I remember <laughs> just thinking, like, what's Hyden doing? Like, they're not going to be that good. And then I went and watched you guys, like, oh, Tri's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I came, in, I came in with a chip on my shoulder, like, screw these guys, like, 
beach volleyball is my sport. It's like, I don't know. I got confidence playing indoors overseas. Like, you, yeah. there's actually a lot of pressure playing indoors overseas because you're, you have like that, you're the foreigner on the team, right? So they flew you and the whole town's looking at you to kind of carry the team. Um, so I used that. The pressure wasn't a big deal. And then I always thought I was a better beach player. And when I watched AVP and I got to grow up kind of seeing like Kevin Wong and Stein and them come back, I was like, I knew I kind of knew how good they were, and I knew that I had gotten somewhere up to that level where I could compete. So I was just like out to prove it, and I had John Hyden on my team. So yeah, definitely a jump. Like I remember playing you with Will. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, like there's something there, but like I was like he's a couple years away, oh, and yeah. it wasn't that much longer when you played with John. And obviously, you guys trained, and I think having probably that chip on your shoulder and having that experience, and just like wow, he's. I didn't see what John saw. Yeah. Well, probably being open was the smartest thing I ever did, was just listen to John. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, he's probably the best person in the world I could have had as my partner at that point. Sure. If you had been stuck with Mayer or something. Oh, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's funny you mentioned the just very different paths of defenders and blockers, because someone asked me the other day if I'd ever thought about playing defense just because I'm a pretty small blocker. It's like, no way. Just the just sheer supply and demand. Like oh, yeah. if you can block, I'm definitely gonna stay yeah, to net. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I always feel like it's like ten of us, like pretty solid defenders around the same level, like fighting for like one or two blockers that are like at the level <laughs> yeah. that we want. You know, and it's just yeah, and that's why it's so much. There's so much more to it than there's. I mean, number one is like how good you are, but there's a lot more to it from that. Like, you know, what kind of partner will you be? You know, how have you, how have you treated people in the past? Like, there's all these like variables. I think probably that's been one of my assets is like not burning bridges and like just kind of recognizing those things. And, and then, you know, eventually like the right blocker, the right partner comes up because, because I've stuck with it or because of, you know, treated people nicely. Yeah. You got to share, you got to share a hotel room and a a bunch of taxis and airplane rides with this person. So if you don't like them, that's definitely going to go into the equation unless they're going to guarantee that you win every tournament. Yeah. But even like on court stuff, if you watch John play with somebody like you're like oh, like super supportive, that's the right. kind of partner you'd want versus like berating your partner because they did something. Yeah, and you can you can see like there's like certain per- like that personality will only work with like a certain person. Like you could watch like oh that'd be, and then there's some personalities like could get probably mold to lots of different people. I think as a defender you want to be that like you want to figure out like how can I be able to play with anybody, any sort of player. Do you guys lean towards any certain type of personality or do you guys just do a good job of sort of molding your style to what fits them? I mean, I first, I just try to play with the best player I can get. I feel like and I'm I'm open enough. I can, you know, focus on myself or whatever they need personality wise. And I feel like it's more, it's not like adjusting my personality as much as it's being okay with their personality. So for instance, it's not like like I play with Stafford. He's, you know, pretty animated it's not like all of a sudden I need to be animated. It's just like, oh, I got a deal that he's going to maybe be waving to the crowd and flapping his arms or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's going to be so good this year, all the blood, bad blood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say, this, I'd say the same. Like, I think number one is getting the best possible player you can get. Yeah. But then you want to consider the intangibles. But I wouldn't ever be like, hey, you have to act this way. Mm-hmm. I think if I saw something that was, like, detrimental to the team, I would maybe point it out. You want to, I mean, you want to kind of play, I guess, play that balance, like figure out like how they can be them, be- their best selves, but also like bring something to the team 
Like if you're like if you're bringing all your energy to the crowd right now, like that some of that co could have come to us. Like that could have been some of our momentum. So I think having some of those conversations and figuring out how to, you know, be the best. Like your partner's got to be the best person for them and for the team, and so do I. And I think having some of those conversations off the court can help you know figure that out. For sure. We're going to pause one more time for a quick word from our sponsors before our final fan question segment. This is Sandcast, beach volleyball with Triborn and Travis Mewerger, presented by Marriott Vacation Club Rentals and brought to you by VolleyballMag.com. VolleyballMag.com is your daily digital news source for all things volleyball, from NCAA women and men to beach volleyball on all levels to international and more. VolleyballMag.com, the only media outlet that covers our sport on all fronts every day. Marriott Vacation Club Rentals offers the best vacation accommodations in the world's best vacation destinations. Wherever you travel, Florida to Hawaii, Europe to California, choose to rest in our luxurious guest rooms, suites, or villas for your next getaway. Villas offer all the comforts of home, including a full kitchen, living and dining area, and separate bedrooms. Stay with the Marriott name you know and trust. Book big spaces and great places today. Visit www.mvcrentals.com. All right, we have our last segment here. We have our fan questions. Um, and we have uh, a unique one here from a listener, Anthony Worthington. He says, I'm planning on moving to Europe this summer 2018. I'm trying to figure out the best locations for beach volleyball, specifically a place with leagues where I might be able to play open or triple A ball. If you guys have any insight, I've never left the country. I finally <laughs> got my passport, but I've never actually left the country, so I'm useless. Good start. With this question. Good start, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you guys have any insight on where Mr. Worthington can play some ball in Europe? Well, Mr. Worthington, <laughs> I just like to say that name. Um, what comes to mind for me is um, Berlin. They have a really cool um, beach volleyball facility out there. There's like probably like ten or fifteen courts. Um, and it's fully fenced in right next to, actually, half, uh, part of the barrier for the uh, courts is at the real Berlin Wall, actually. So that's kind of cool. Um, but that's where uh, we had a grand slam there, and the side courts were at this beach volleyball facility. The main court was uh, at a train station, actually. Um, but that's kind of the coolest facility that I remember in Europe. Uh, the Hague, also, there's a lot of people playing uh, they have a huge beach there in The Hague in the Netherlands. But, yeah, I don't know. That, that's all I can think of. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the places we've played, they build a, like a court somewhere in yeah. Europe, and, and it doesn't seem like a permanent spot. So I don't, I'm sure there are spots because the sport's big out there. I just don't know them. I've actually been curious about that. Most of the FIVBs, you said, are, are man-made. They're not on uh, just natural <laughs> beaches. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess China has a couple on the beach. But those are, yeah, I guess Shanghai was kind of Shanghai actually Shanghai's had a beach, yeah. had a facility on the beach. Um, yeah, it's funny because like I always thought like being a beach volleyball player is like being a pro surfer. Like, oh yeah, I just travel the world and go right. to all these sick beaches and play. No, it doesn't work like that. We just go to normal places and well, not normal, really a lot of nice places in Europe. But they're just building courts. Like we're playing in the Swiss Alps and like I said, in a train station or at in a port in. Uh, Norway or it's not always on the beach it's actually rarely on a beach I feel like um, except for like Rio is like the only like tropical beach we go to I feel like which sucks for me because that's what I want <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, yeah, Puerto Vallarta, they used to do that. Was Puerto like Vallarta, yeah. Beach. I'm trying to think of where else. Yeah, there's not a lot that was a beach. But Puerto Vallarta is like it was not really beach. the beach. It's yeah. like an open lot where they yeah. built courts. Yeah. How are the, the courts? Because I know that a lot of the sort of man-made beaches that I've played on, like San Francisco was, so we, we didn't play the qualifier at the main facility. We went to some like sort of rec center and you could you could pretty much like dust it and then find like the concrete underneath. Like how are the man-made facilities on the FIVB? Like, are they all right? No, they're good. They're, yeah. There's high standards yeah. for that. Um, I mean, that would be bad. There'd be a lot of complaints. If I remember hearing there's like some like 500 page book, like if you're going to run an FIVB event, like it's very detailed. Like they have to follow a lot of things. Norseka's on the other hand, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, there was a match where Haydn and I were playing. He's like, all right, we're not trying to get hurt. If the ball goes outside the lines, don't chase it. And like, don't jump. And he, I mean, he definitely, I, I couldn't stop myself, but he just straight up stopped. Cause it was like, just the sand was so compact and hard. It was like an inch of, of like loose sand. And then it was just like basically concrete. And then someone found a knife in the sand at one point. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's There'll be pretty like bad. chickens running on the court. I feel like yeah. the, the North Seca is just, like a walking contradiction too. They're like, yeah, you have to be at the player meeting at seven thirty. Otherwise, you're out of the tournament. You and show up thirty minutes late. Yeah, the tournament starts at nine. <laughs> or sorry, the, the meeting starts at nine, and then the next morning you show up. Like none of the lines are set up. Like you're warming up and trying to set up the lines, putting the antennas up. Like it's just, it's not good. Yeah. But I, I was actually curious, Travis, for you. I know people have talked about the AVP this year. A lot of the qualifiers were really big, which was awesome. And it, it was exciting to see the numbers. Um, but it ended up being that people had to play at different sites, which I know is probably really inconvenient and, yeah. and not very fun. So I was wondering if you would change it, like if you'd rather have, I think it seems like the options would be you, sh you make the qualifier smaller, so you could have like a 32 team like the FIVB does, or you could do like a two-day qualifier, which means you have more hotel and right. you're all on the site though, or, or would you prefer how they did it last year? Was there a That's a good question. I was only really moved for the San Francisco because um, I know we had to split it up in Austin but the guys were at the main site and then the women were I think I think it was at a bar um, the other one and then I think that they played maybe their last round they came back to the main site so I was only moved in San Francisco which was inconvenient but at the same time if we're on the same playing surface then it, yeah. it, is, it is what it is so I would definitely much rather just have a one day qualifier if you got to move it you got to move it I mean there's only so the much general, space the general feel of well, um, I mean, I'm sure you guys know that beach volleyball players, if they can find something to complain about, sure. they're going to complain about it. Yeah. So no matter what the AVP did, they were kind of handcuffed because people were going to whine either way. Yeah. So I think if you just look at the situation as it is, that it's not going to be perfect. Like, you know, and I mean, in San Francisco, it was, that was one of the smaller qualifiers too. I mean, there's only maybe 45, 50 teams. Yeah. Um, but, you know, not everything is Manhattan Beach where you can just, <laughs> the right. beach goes for days. Right. Um, so I would I would rather just keep it one day rather than two because like you said like that's an extra day off work that a lot of us would have to take an extra hotel, mm -hmm. whatever it may be. But even there, there's got to be some limit. Like I, I can't see them you play five being okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, playing five. And that's what in hot I, I talked with uh, Jeff Conover in Austin, and it was a 66 team qualifier, which at the time looked huge <laughs> until we saw Manhattan, which I think was 111. Which was one spots, of the biggest, right? right. Yeah. Um, but if you were, so if you were in the pigtail in Austin, you would have had to have played five matches to qualify. And Jeff was like, it's getting to the point where it's not safe. 
Because if you play, say, say for some reason, all five of those matches goes to three sets. Well, now you have 15 sets worth of volleyball on your legs, and then you have to wake up first thing tomorrow morning and play Nick well, and Phil. And Austin finished at like 9 o'clock, right? Yeah, they had to go under the lights, lights and yeah. it was, yeah, I mean, the last match was late. Yeah. And then you played the Austin kids the next day. Um, I said kids, and Troy Slickers, I think he's 37. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they, like, they played, I think, four matches. I mean, luckily for them, all of them were straight sets, so they had the least wear and tear they could have, but still, like, eight sets of volleyball, of qualifier volleyball is a lot different than, like, a CBVA or practice. Oh, yeah, like it's, that's, high, it's high stress. Like, that's yeah. a lot. Like, you wake up the next morning, and you're like, God, these stairs are pretty inconvenient. Yeah, they didn't warm up a lot. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, qualifiers, uh, they're just kind of, I mean, you guys have been through them. I don't know. I think it's just sort of a rite of passage um, that, you know, if you want to get out of them, you probably just you have to keep getting better and make and make the qualifiers easy on yourself as possible. Um, but I think that the draws were getting bigger as the year went on. I mean, Chicago was a big draw. Manhattan, always a big draw. Hermosa was, um, bigger. Hermosa was a big draw. Um, and I think that I wouldn't be surprised if we saw more 24 and 32 team draws just coming up just because like, you can't really ask people to do that. Like if it is a professional sport, like you can't ask them to play for 10 hours and then wake up the next morning and play again. Yeah. Well, I hope we continue to see the growth. Because when Billy and I first started playing, uh, 2004 or five now, that's, you know, it's 32 team draws and the qualifier. I feel like most of the qualifiers were like that. You know, it's 100 teams, but eight teams get in. And, right. You know, that it, it's great having that much excitement and people wanting to play the sport and go after, like, chase this dream. So it's good to see. And I hope we don't. I don't want to see it limited. I think it's good to have it as big as we can make it. Yeah, and it, it, it's the difference between... So Manhattan had 111 teams. Austin had 66, both really big qualifiers. But Manhattan's a little bit different because you have a lot of like B and double B guys who are just going out there to be like, oh, I played in the Manhattan Beach qualifier. And so your first you know, round two, maybe even three rounds, like if you're one of the top-ranked teams, unless you're you know, Mike Brunsting and Jeff Samuels got screwed because they got Matt Olson and... Uh, Matt Motter in the first round, which stunk, but like a lot of times you'll get teams that it won't be too intense of a match for a while. Whereas in say a smaller draw like Huntington, when you have like Reed and Kane were in the qualifier and it was just stacked and like all three or four of your matches are going to be crazy. So when you have the bigger draws with the bigger qualifiers, a lot of times you have sort of almost like a glorified buy for your first two, which makes it a little bit easier. Yeah. Do you guys miss the qualifiers? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, FIVB, I still Oh, true. <laughs> yeah, it sucked. Now we have a fan question for you, John. This is from Donnie B. What is your vertical, and how was it playing with Jeff Nygaard? <laughs> <laughs> I think Jeff Nygaard is a partner that I had a higher vertical than. <laughs> wasn't a is your vert still the same? Is mine? I don't know. Probably not. I'm getting older. I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't think it's anything extraordinary. I remember we d- we did a vert test <laughs> of body dynamics <laughs> and John and I were like we both did it. We're like, this can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're used Thank to jumping, you yeah, you're used to jumping in the sand. It's, I mean, I jump significantly lower on hardwood now than I did when I played indoor. But I probably jump higher out of sand now than I do on hardwood. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I know. Yeah, in college, I. I jump pretty pretty good. I could touch higher. I mean, now it wouldn't even come close to what I touched then. Let's say where, where's the highest you touched on the rim? That's that's how I judge it. I know I was able to get like the box up there. I think I was like eleven 
He's at 11'3", I think. That's pretty high. Yeah. You're 6'2"? Six 6'1". Two? Uh, yeah. College that listing, 6'4". Gives you, <laughs> yeah. gives your vert an extra inch. Yeah. Wait, but did you set... This is super random, but did you you set for Pep yeah. to the national championship? No. John did everything. I you, set, and we lost in the final four, and then when I hit, we won. Oh, okay. Yeah, Got it. Yeah. That's pretty impressive, yeah. though. Yeah, no, I, we had good players. Yeah, John was a, a setter, and then he moved to opposite his last year. I think uh-huh. Beach was a huge reason I was able to, because I, I loved Beach, and I'd play Beach like all summer, and especially as a setter, you'd come from setting and not getting the hit and getting a lot of whining about how bad your sets were. <laughs> so then, you know, in the summers I'd play nonstop. And then when we, we got a, a guy named Jonathan Winder, who's a really good setter, came in my senior year. Yeah, you were screwed. Yeah. So the, <laughs> like, Six, eight. Yeah, a really good hand. Yeah, he's really good. And um, at Pepperdine, we had, like, no depth because it's, yeah, we had, like, seven guys who could play. So they had to figure out how I can get on the court. So I was libero, and I hated it. And... Um, I think I would just try to show them that I could hit all the time. Like, I never hit in my whole life, but, like, whenever there's hitting lines or something, I'd, like, go grab a ball. Yeah. And <laughs> make someone else set. Because there's always two people setting and hit, hit, hitting lines. So I was like, I'm not setting. <laughs> and then finally they let me hit. But I think beach was for sure. Like, I got all those reps hitting in the summers. That's kind of how you find a good beach player. I mean, because I feel the same way. I was that guy for SC. Played kind of every position. Um, but when you see that guy indoors who can play every position and is willing to kind of fill any role they're usually the guy that's going to be good on the beach because sure. you have to do every skill yeah no for sure the person also asked about jeff nygaard yeah, oh, yeah. so i gotta follow up on that he was, <laughs> he was my all-time favorite partner um no offense to my other partners but he, he, yeah he was so fun to play with he was a vet like he was a veteran probably kind of like how Hyden was for for try so I, I learned a lot from him uh we had really similar demeanors I played with him for about three seasons, and I won my first first tournament with him. And he, I think, he was just really impressive. Like he, he always came into practice really focused. Like he knew what he wanted to get better at. Um, he wasn't, especially at that point, he wasn't like an amazing athlete, but he was really skilled. Like he was really, like really good platform, really good hands, um, you know, good court vision, all that. And I think he was a great teammate, which is a huge skill. So he was he was awesome. And what made him? I mean, you mentioned a lot of the just the tangible skills that he had, great pass, great hands and all that stuff, but a lot of guys have that. What makes someone a really good teammate and your your favorite partner, aside from Billy? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> one A and one B. Uh, I think the first thing is someone who has um, their themselves figured out a little bit. I think like he was really um, set in his... Like, he knew the kind of player he wanted to be. He knew, I don't know, he's like, he was pretty set in his life, like, had a family. I don't know, he was just, like, an organized guy. And so you, know, you didn't have to worry about any, like, outside stuff. I wasn't like, oh, is Jeff going to come in into practice ready? Is he going to, you know, come in and dog it today? Is he, I, you know, he never even thought about that stuff because he took care of the weights. He took care of conditioning or foam rolling or all that, where a lot of other partners, you didn't know what you were going to get with the day-to-day. Like, everyone's kind of when the whistle blows in a tournament. Like, everyone's ready. Like, everyone can do that. But like, can you be like if you put in the work before then you'll be the you know you'll be the most ready, and I think he would do that like day to day stuff better than anyone, and I think that was very infectious for me. It's like okay, like I got like I got to keep up, like I got to be ready to, today and the next day, and just that consistent consistency, like that like kind of blue collar work ethic really hit hit with me, and I um, so yeah, I think just more than anything, it wasn't like you know you come in and dictate like you got to do this. It was it was more like through kind of osmosis like. You know, I just see what he does, so I want to do that. 
Yeah, he actually coached me at SC my senior year, and it was cool. I mean, like, we are just, like, opposite personalities. Like, I would sit in his office, and, like, it would just be, like, silence, and he'd be loving it, and I'd be like, wait, what's <laughs> happening right now? <laughs> I don't, half the stuff he'd say I wouldn't understand. He's, like, very intellectual guy. Um, but I loved, actually ended up loving him coaching me because he was, like, one of the only coaches I ever had that, like, if he didn't have anything to say, he just wouldn't say anything. And if I'd ask him a question, be like, why is my serve so bad today? He's like, I, I don't know. Let's figure it out. Instead of like, oh, well, uh, put your, you know, you got to get your hand up high and like, just give me that like standard spiel. Everything he said was just like logical and like, oh, yeah, all right, let's figure it out. And be like, it would be something so simple. I'd be like, wow. He like had to say two words and he helped me more than any other coach. Yeah. Uh, there's for sure like no none of that white noise. Yeah, him. like he's very direct, and I, I definitely appreciated that. I feel like that's a hallmark of good coaching is just being able to simplify sometimes a pretty complex skill. There's a lot that goes into serving, and like you said, you can just yeah. put it in two words and you're good. He, I remember him once. He was, uh, or actually a few times. It ended up being a trend for us. I would be my serve would suck, or I would think it would suck, and then he would walk over and watch it, and I'd hit it good. And be like, there you go, fixed it. Like, and he'd walk away. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> no, it was sucking before, but you watching me made it. All right, whatever, never mind. And he'd just walk away. <laughs> well, I think that's, I mean, we, Billy and I could talk about coaching all day, but I think it's like the, one of the biggest challenges as a coach. Like, you're so excited about your sport and you've studied up and you know all this stuff and you just want to like vomit it on the yeah. player. And that's like the absolute worst thing you could do for a player. Totally. Like, if you're trying to. Yeah, do a complex skill like spiking. Like you don't want to be thinking about like your feet and your arm and the way you're low, you know. So if you give them like ten things, they lose all of it. But I think really good coaches find like one really specific thing that they can focus on. And sometimes it's you know more of like an analogy or like a you know a visual imagery that they can focus on. And I think that's what good coaches do well. Or distract you from from all ten of those things, sure. right? Just yeah, like sure. think about um, eating cereal while you serve. <laughs> And then you just like crush perfect serve. Like, oh yeah, okay, I was overthinking it. Yeah, for sure. Now we got uh, Hustle Slowly, who normally hates on lefties, but John, he spared you today. <laughs> um, and he says, this could be for both. So I guess, Billy, we'll start with you. Would you rather be a great passer with bad court vision or a bad passer with great court vision? If that scenario could ever happen. I'd rather be <laughs> a good passer. I think... Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd rather be in system, Less work. closing my eyes and swinging as hard as I can on a good set rather than chasing stuff, knowing where the defense is because they both pulled. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this has been studied in volleyball a lot, like passing, if you rank the skills, like passing is always number one. So, I mean, that's that's not it. as much as of an opinion. It's That's a fact. The court vision would be way lower. Um, if you pass, like, the, word, the spot you pass correlates to side-out percentage. So, I mean, if you pass well, you, you're going to have, like, some, um, what's it called, a peripheral vision, even if, like, you're not taking your eye off the ball. So, yeah, I mean, unless you're maybe seven foot one. <laughs> yeah. I think then you don't even need to know where the defense is. <laughs> yeah, then you really <laughs> don't even know. Exactly, you don't need vision or passing. No, no, I th yeah, I think, I mean, passing is such an important skill. You've talked about it, the idea of kind of, instead of, like, reacting to defense, more just setting the tone with offense. Like, oh, yeah. so sometimes like taking a look and like, I don't know, being the one that make the second move isn't as important as just dictating the hit and just hitting to a good spot and I don't know, being aggressive with it. 
Yeah, that's def- I mean, that's more uh, more opinion. I don't know what the right way, but I've I've felt like in my experience, very anecdotal. Like when I'm trying to like really see where that defender's going, when your shots are like, you know, you're, then you lose track of the ball a little bit, and your shots aren't as crisp. Versus just yeah, like I'm gonna hit it here. Like good luck. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of top players that probably don't take a great look. Yeah, for sure. I think that's. I don't take a look. Yeah, no, I think it's a very like kind of like sexy idea, like this like vision, like Todd looked at the court 18 times. Just <laughs> like, yeah, like he passed really well. Like Phil set him in the same spot, and like he was able to hit the ball where he wanted. And I'm sure vision was like, that was part of the toolbox, but like that was like way down the list. So I, would, I think people overrate it. I think it's a, like a fun idea, but I think people overvalue it. Well, plus you could be playing, you don't have court vision, but you're playing the blocker, so. Right. If, if if the blocker goes to the line, you're assuming that the defender's in the angle, and majority of the time he's going to be there. Obviously, you can double up if you want, but a lot of hitters just play the blocker the whole time, and like, sure. like that's their whole strategy, and it works. Yeah, those blockers can't do much. Our next question here is: uh, What's your favorite Christmas gift of the year? We don't get good gifts anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we remodeled our house. It's nice. Our house is nice. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a nice uh, podcast hosting. Yeah, it is. <laughs> We've been uh, sp- I've been splurging a lot on uh, kitchen utensils and gadgets. Um, bought a sous vide machine and uh, <laughs> You're so old. instant exciting. Pot. <laughs> um, got a nice book. Cutting board. You got a Martha Martha Stewart yeah. cookbook. <laughs> 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 what about you, Try? Um, what's the question? What did I get for Best Christmas? Christmas gifts? Oh, it could man. be, I guess, uh, received or given. Um, what did I get? Um, <laughs> Hopefully, Gabby's not. You know, listening. I was given out a lot of presents. <laughs> I gave uh, my nieces and nephews some presents. Gave my niece some uh, some of these Dalmatian kind of slippers that had these socks built into it, like all the way up to her knees. She's only like two, so. I just thought she'd look funny in them, and she did. <laughs> so it was fun to watch her run around in those things for a, a day or two. Travis, what'd you get? Uh, my girlfriend got me some shoes, which were much needed. I had the same pair of Nike Freeze for four years, mm-hmm. and she always made fun of me for them, but I never really wear shoes. I'm either in sandals or just like on the rare occasion I have to go into work, I'll just put on like Sperry's or something. So I finally got new shoes to go to the gym in, which is nice because like my feet were sort of poking through the ends of them. <laughs> Um, that's probably the, the best gift that I got this year. Although I did get a, I'm a big crock pot guy. Love doing like crock pots on Sundays. So my mom got me a crock pot cookbook. So. I'm telling you, I got the instant pot. You heard that? <laughs> no. Dude, it's like a, it's like a, instead of a slow cooker, it's like a fast cooker. Okay. Yeah, it's a pressure cooker. You I'm, I'm going to have to look into that. <laughs> um, and we'll do, uh, we'll do one more question here. Um, just because we, we talked on passing a lot. So what is an important uh, form check or tip or drill that you guys have to improve passing? Coach Mayer? <laughs> Does this coach your brains out? Yeah. <laughs> well, my, um, my coach at Pepperdine, he's an all-time great coach, Marv Dunphy. He'd say, if you want to work on passing, the best drill is pass, set, hit. And if you want to work on uh, hitting, the best drill is pass, set, hit. If you want to work on and so on. So I think the more game-like it is, the more transfer there will be. So if you... You want things um, in practice to look as much like the tournament because then it'll transfer to, to being good in the tournament. So, yeah, I think you want to play volleyball. And then when you're playing volleyball, you just want to pick your focuses. So, like, today I'm going to really focus on my passing when I play. 
and then you can get into the nitty-gritty of what you have to work on. I mean, I think the most important skill in the game is reading, like seeing the game is because you don't you don't touch the ball very often when you play volleyball. It's barely on your skin. It's like um, was it about three seconds you touch the ball in a match to that lasts about 20 minutes. So you barely touch the ball. That's crazy. So so the what you're doing most of the time is you're I mean there's some communicating there's some movement patterns, um, and there's some self talk but the real most of the time you're reading you're trying to figure out like where's that server gonna put the ball, and you could have this like really perfect platform, but if you don't see things like it'll hit your like with my daughter I, I've taught her a pretty good platform but she doesn't know how to read so it'll hit her hit her shoulder hit her in the face <laughs> you know? so um, I think when you get really you can really you can never get good enough at it like it's a really simple concept. But if you get really good at seeing the right things, then you can see where the serve's going to go. And then even if you have poor technique, like you at least have a sense of where it's going to be and you can put it right. somewhere. So yeah, I'd say get in a game-like situation and you know, figure, out where you're, you're, uh, figure out your focus and then watch some film and figure out where you struggle. This is why I love doing this podcast. I'm just sitting here taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying you still work on passing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, what is, I think it's... Like Joe Trinzi's done a lot of these studies. I think passing and serving are one and two by far. Like um, at the world tour level, like when he studied the Olympics and the the um, world championships, like those were the best teams do the best. So, yeah, I think uh, Evandro is is a good anecdotal study of that. Just yeah. how good he serves. Oh yeah, a good jump server can take over a match, for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean passing if you like he, yeah, there's he drew the, they have these boxes on the court. Like if you pass here, you side out at like seventy percent. You pass six feet back it's like 40 percent so you're t- i mean that's in a match that's you know a good amount of points that you're giving up so um it's not just passing it's like being able to pass accurately <laughs> you know sort of pass where you want the ball yeah, to go for sure yeah. yeah yeah having that sort of control and and that's where the game like thing comes in like anybody can like not anybody but it's fairly easy when your coach like makes you know spins balls at you and you you know that feels really good and it's easy but that's not game like when you play in tournaments you're going to play Somebody hits a really jump, tough jump serve into the wind from this corner, and then the next match there'll be someone standing float, short and deep, and and that's why you want your practice to be as game like as possible, so you're ready for all these tournament scenarios. Billy, any passing advice? Yeah, I would say the same thing. A lot of serve receive off a real serve. I think whenever we think of do passing drills, we start people think start with like free balls and stuff like that, but I mean, you need to be challenged. I think most of us can handle a free ball and. You don't, like John said, you don't get a whole lot of those <laughs> coach spinning the ball back to you <laughs> in, in a tournament. And I would just say maybe take a really good look at the server, um, what information they're giving you. To, that's kind of the first step before you need to worry about where you're stepping or you know, how your hands are and stuff. Is just really reading that server, their toss, uh, their contact point, and get a good jump on the ball. I think it's telling, too, that I'm pretty sure every guest, except for maybe Kelly Clay, has said she wants to work on blocking a lot, that every single guest, we've had a similar question, and they've always said that, passing is their number one focus like even phil who's been playing you know forever at the game's top level he said passing is still the thing that i want to get better on so i think for just anyone listening that the number one skill comes down to passing yeah it's kind of the foundation i think for everyone it's the first touch so yeah yeah uh, well, that'll wrap it up for fan questions is there anything that you guys want to mention before we head out no, thanks for having us on. Um, check out Coach Your Brains Out. If you can check out Sandcast after you've you know listened to our episodes <laughs> two or three times. <laughs> and when when Billy 
his book comes out, yes, yes. Um, please read it. It's called, what's it called? First Blood? Uh, John, John, John. Is <laughs> oh, that, that, that Rambo? <laughs> what's it called? True Blood. Good Blood. Good Blood. <laughs> so close. Working title. You also, you also have a uh, cyborg book you're working on? Uh, the main character's name will be John Mayer. <laughs> main villain. Be a musician. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, Davili, good luck in The Hague. Thanks. Um, we'll have to uh, take it up with you when you get back. Uh, well, thanks for, for having us, John. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I'm looking forward to listening uh, to this in future episodes. Yeah, Does this come fun. out after I'm back from The Hague? When does this come out? Uh, this should be out next Wednesday. Okay. So you could I don't know if I need to record like a couple versions. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> like, man, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to redo that. <laughs> Thanks again, guys, and uh, we will catch you guys next week on Sandcast. Later.